Hello, I'm Barbara Ann Garcia, healthcare advocate, strong woman athlete, and the host of Healthcare Untold. Healthcare Untold is a podcast dedicated to giving voice to everyday heroes and their untold health stories that can improve healthcare to our most vulnerable communities. It is March 18, 2020, and with me today is Dr. Ken Epstein. Dr. Epstein has spent his almost 30-year career dedicated to children, youth, and family, providing direct mental health services, teaching, and in on several clinical and health leadership roles. Dr. Pre- Dr. Epstein presently leads Prep for Change Consulting, an organization that is dedicated to healing, systems change, and compassionate care. Dr. Epstein, welcome to Healthcare Untold. It's a pleasure to be here, Mona. Before we get started with hearing more of your background and how you got into the mental health field and the public health field, it's hard not to acknowledge the very stressful time for all of us in the world. And in San Francisco Bay Area, where we both are, uh, we are in a three-week shelter in place uh, to try to manage the spread of the coronavirus. You know, as a mental health professional, can, um, can you give us some thoughts on this and some recommendations for the listening audience to help people um, cope through their anxiety um, of this crisis? Sure, Will. Um, first, I want to say um, I still appreciate, Barbara, you asking the question and also doing this podcast. And um, it's really important for me to say a lot of what I'm going to be talking about today I learned. Um, being mentored by you as director of San Francisco Public Health, and um, okay, as we face, yeah, as we really as we face this crisis, a lot of what I've learned as a behavioral health person was, um, you know, really what I learned in public health is to think on a population basis. So I was thinking a couple of things that are really important right now, and they've been said over and over again. But the first thing is, of course, from a public health perspective, we're learning about all of the behaviors we need to do to contain the virus. And I, like lots of people, took a while to get serious about it. But I'm sure now that we're um, secure at home and all of the um, activities are going on to contain it, it's very important that we help others contain the virus. The second C is we have to clarify we have to, um, and this means that we can't spend our days watching the news on Facebook and having conversations with everyone about every particular information. We have to take care of ourselves and balance the information overload and also right. our own mindfulness in our lives. And that takes really intentional steps. It takes intentional steps to turn off your TV or your phone, do mindfulness, do whatever it is. Um, that allows you to center because what's going to happen is we're going to build, you know, there's a certain amount of anxiety we all should have, and then there's an amount of anxiety that gets toxic for us. And when anxiety gets toxic, we actually become more vulnerable to the disease and other things that just happen to us. So we really have to work on our um, level of anxiety. The third thing is um, we have to connect. Um, As human beings, we are wired to connect with each other. And we are fortunate now that we have lots of ways to connect through the internet or through um, Zoom or um, even having six-foot conversations with a neighbor. But the truth is um, we have to stay connected because absent connected, being connected, um, we will become isolated, fearful, and um, 
more anxious. So again, those are probably, I could say a lot more, but for us that are um, in our homes or wondering what's going to happen or wondering with relatives, um, one of the things a family that I know is doing is they're um, developing weekly large Zoom conference calls with each other at the same time just to see the new baby, to be able to talk to the couple that's going to get married, to make sure that the elder is okay, and for the elder to be able to see um, their family. So you could do that through sending pictures. Um, there are a million ways that I think you can just focus on connection and um, with others. And along those lines, I think it's important to even write the, the, um, the Berkeley Center for Greater Good talks about how um, gratitude and being in awe actually helps our brain and rewire our brain. And I know I spent some time yesterday just sending, like, sending emails to nonprofits and agencies and people I've worked with, thanking them for what they do, and knowing that these are really difficult times. And it just felt good. It just felt good to send letters of gratitude to people, um, knowing that they may not feel thanked for their first responder status or their um, what they're doing to help us in this time of need. I think that's those are great um, recommendations, uh, Dr. Epstein. Particularly, you know, I've been um, I have a list of people I call daily, and then I'm mm-hmm. kind of pulling up people, and you know, absolutely, those are. And we're so lucky to have uh, the social media. And if you don't have Zoom, you always have Face uh, Time on your iPhone. Mm-hmm which is a, mm-hmm. another great way to be able to see people. So we really encourage people to use social media. Those are powerful tools that we have in our hands and yeah, especially uh, cleaning those too, as you use them. Uh-huh. Okay. We've got a new, a whole new thing around washing everything and washing your hands yes, and right. washing your, particularly That's your right. social media tools. Thank you, Dr. I wanted to say one, Go ahead. I want to say one more thing quickly, if I could, um, Barbara, is that, um, you know, I, you know, as a white man, um, and knowing that I have the privilege of being, um, having had a career and being in this house and this space that I am, I also um, know that while the disease has a general impact, it has a specific impact on those populations of folks that have historically um, experienced inequities and um, disparities. And so um, I think it's also important to keep in mind that um, this disease, this this COVID, hits our communities just in the same kind of disparaging ways that um, other traumas do, and we'll talk more about that later. But it's also important to keep in mind that um, there's a larger world out there, and uh, we're trying to take care of folks relative to those needs. So if your food doesn't arrive on time or something doesn't, Amazon's not there on time, or your internet doesn't work as well as you might like, or, you know, you, you know, your picture, you know, really have some patience around knowing that our highest priority is to the folks in greatest need. Well, that's, uh, uh, those are great comments, uh, Dr. Epstein, particularly for those of us who have more resources. You know, we have so mm-hmm. many people that may work for you, your landscaper, your house cleaner, even your gym mm-hmm. trainer who do not have sick mm-hmm. time. Or vacation That's time. Right. So, you know, there's That's nothing right. wrong with paying them for three weeks in advance. That's right. Um, That's right. I think this is the way that we're going to be able to support each other um, through this. So, so think of those without sick time 
um, and with um, mm-hmm. less resources just in your surrounding area. Um, I think mm-hmm. that is a, a, one of them is gratitude for the people who uh, help you mm-hmm. uh, maintain your home, mm-hmm. maintain your yard. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, those are, for, especially for those with more resources, it's time to share and time to share with yes, those sir. around you. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for those comments. I, I hope the audience um, will um, really uh, take those um, recommendations that you have to mind. So, Dr. Epstein, tell us more about why and how you got into the mental health field, uh, particularly since uh, this seems to be a, um, something that your family has totally embraced. Uh-huh. Well, yes, Father, you know, I'm, a, I'm the middle generation of three generations of social workers. Uh, my mom uh, is 86. Um, we just um, helped her retire um, in the uh, end of November. So um, we also have longevity. And so I, I grew up really uh, in a household with uh, um, the idea of social work. And, um, and also in my adolescence, um, not unlike any adolescence, um, I um, really struggled. I struggled with um, drug use and uh, alcohol use and um, students. And, uh, and yet, at the same time, um, I had this experience when I was in high school with a teacher uh, in the midst of this, asked me if I wanted to volunteer at a state hospital running um, the different And that experience in my teen year of high school actually shifted my uh, entire perspective, even though it was in family, it came from a mentor and from the uh, being reinforced that I could actually do this and really enjoying from that point on college and um, after college when I worked in residential settings and finally went and got my social work degree, I've been committed to the field. And it's, honestly, it's, I have never turned back. I mean, like to say, um, Robert, you have this, and I, you know, I, I fly a lot and I used to introduce myself. And people say, What do you think I'm a social worker? They're, oh, isn't that nice? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then of course, you know, you say, you know, then I, I worked for you in government, and you say, you know, you work for government, and they say, oh my God, that must be horrible. And, you know, neither of those experiences represent my experience in the field. I feel like it has been the most um, incredible, um, heartwarming, beneficial, and has given so much back to me um, that I just feel lucky to have had these 30 some years uh, working. Um, directly in mental health and behavioral health. That's wonderful. And so tell us a little bit about um, the work that you did um, in trauma um, care. Uh, you know, I know that you have trained thousands of people, uh, particularly uh-huh. providers, in looking at uh-huh. how trauma impacts, and, you know, it's so relevant today as we see this, and, um, and particularly for providers who are trying to um, meet the needs, particularly of people of color. Um, and, you know, now we have a worldwide traumatic event. And um, mm-hmm. tell us about mm-hmm. a, the, mm-hmm. what you're doing around training the professional and, and uh, what you're doing today mm-hmm. in your organization. Let me start with a little bit about, um, about my, a little bit I didn't say about my own history and then, um, and then answer the question about trauma and how the focus of trauma is that I, 
I um, entered into the field as a clinician focused on systems and um, passionate about um, families. And part of that um, passion was that um, we as a society, this society really in this country, is very individualistically focused. And um, yet um, we as a people um, are wired to be connected to family and community in our context. And so many of our systems are developed around individual diagnoses, individual performance, uh, individual promotion, um, and more of the fact that actually we live in a collaborative and a collective world. Most other you know, nations and communities understand this better, but ours has developed in a really style. Why that's important is because um, when I met you, Barbara, um, you may not remember this, but two weeks after the job, I started the job, I, you asked me why at this age, um, not, you weren't saying it in a bad way, but you asked me why at this point in my career I'd chosen to work for the Department of Public Health in my 50s. And I told you what I'm going to tell you now, which is that um, I'd been in the field for 30 years. I'd seen lots of progress, but I started in the field um, working residentially, young people, um, taking people, we were taking people out of hospitals, 12, 14, 16-year-olds with cigarette-stained fingers from having been in the, and smoking cigarettes down to the bottom, having been basically just incarcerated in state hospitals. And we've come a long way, and there's lots of evidence and much more humane services and, and I said that it was my experience that with all of our evidence and all of our technology, the outcomes in San Francisco, and particularly for black and brown children, youth, and families, were worse, not better. There were more kids being suspended from preschool right. than high school. Right. There were more families living on the edge, and the city was now divided, more rich and poor. And um, so there was something happening where our workforce had theoretically all of this technology and evidence and our population and disparities were growing greater. And my feeling then and my feeling now is um, that um, while we have become a society more interested in trauma um, or understanding of individual trauma, certainly starting after the Vietnam War with understanding the experiences of veterans, or even before we're shell-shocked in the World War. But we had to understand that trauma is actually in systems. It's in families, it's in communities, and it's actually in organizations. And I said to you then, and I believe now, that um, our large systems um, are traumatized. They experience the same kinds of symptoms. They experience us versus them, nothing. Um, experienced um, the kinds of feelings where stories are told that happened 20 years ago, so we're reliving experiences, and it impacts the capacity for the system to deliver services because the system in itself is traumatized. And those traumas, just like in the community, are experienced with the same kinds of inequities. So you'll see large systems where black and brown people are not promoted at the same rates as white folks. You'll see um, the kinds of things, and you'll see experiences where there's differential pay. You'll see the kinds of experiences where people are numb and telling you when they're going to retire. 
Um, I remember first starting and meeting somebody Barbara in the elevator and introducing myself. He said, oh, no, no, no. Uh, you know, said, I'm, um, I'm retiring in two years. And I was right. like, oh, okay. <laughs> I'm not right. supposed to talk to you for two years. What, what do I do here? <laughs> and, you know, part of that issue is when you talk about um, systems, right? Systems are traumatized. Mm-hmm. Um, you kind of think, mm-hmm. well, what is a system, right? Is it a, an entity? Right. No, That's it's right. made up of individuals who bring their life to their work. That's right. And, That's right. you know, one of the telling tales for me um, when I was working at the San Francisco Health Department was the fact that mental health and substance abuse was distinct. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. that we were not doing the kind of work in the jail. And when I asked the That's question right. why we weren't doing it in the jail was that the state plan, health plan, didn't provide for that. Um, right. I was shocked. This had been a policy for who knows how That's long. Right. And the only reason I found out was because a, a staff member from the jail came to me and said, did you know, right, That's that right. this was not being allowed mm-hmm. because we mm. were medically, medical driven, meaning that the medical insurance was driving the system of care people in jail lose their medical so therefore they don't qualify for the service right i I, that was a system it was uh, you know perpetuated by individuals because that's what they were told by the state and that was impossible to understand for me coming with maybe fresh eyes to this situation where i didn't understand that so i asked the person to write a memo that is uh-huh. the next day we were going to provide that. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. How a system can be um, organized in a way, right? And we're very organized by our funding sources. Um, and then mm-hmm. to eliminate a whole group of people without asking the question, well, who will serve them? Right? Well, jail staff will serve them. Right. So a right. system is really it's an important work that you're doing in your um, your new uh, consulting business, because systems are people and they're um, creating decisions based on other kinds of rules. But nobody questions whether that rule may really make sense for the people who we serve. And so I really, you know, um, you know, when you worked with the health department and you and I worked together, that's really what I saw in you is somebody who mm-hmm. was willing to, uh, you know, to see the question, to ask the question, and to really question the system. Um, and you kind of think that it's a living being, and it is. It's multiple living beings mm-hmm. following rules that it sometimes does. don't make sense. It does, and it has competing policies and procedures. And I think you're so right when you think about, um, when you think about, you know, how we serve folks that are in jail, or you think about when I was um, directing uh Children, Youth, and Families Behavioral Health, um, the state decided that they weren't going to reimburse for treatment of families. You know, or, you know, the fact that children, youth, and families need a diagnosis to get service. Um, You know, these are the kinds of decisions um, that um, actually decrease access and increase alienation. And you see those same decisions in you know, in, in organizations and in systems, and you're absolutely right that our systems are made up of people. And if, you know, if you understand trauma as, you know, a particular event um, or a series of events or institutional or historical racism, uh, sexism, homophobia, trans, 
transphobia, xenophobia. If you understand those as either the, you know, a particular event that might be, you know, happening right now, like COVID, or the drip, drip, drip of trauma that happens over days, weeks, months, and years, the impact is that it, um, just as we were talking about before, well, the impact is it destroys relationships. It destroys connections. The connections are the, the core of our being in systems or in families or in communities. And so one of the tragedies, I think, of um, bureaucracies in the healthcare business is that it has ignored, actually, that reality, that scientific reality, that our best evidence that is in the healing professions, that not surprisingly, the best evidence around healing is that it happens in the context of others. We, you know, when we look at our evidence base, we often look to, you know, what is the single kind of pill or cure or thing we might do, and we do this organizationally with policies and initiatives, and we do this diagnostically with people looking for a simple answer. When the problem is complex, if trauma happens in the context of relationships, then it must be healed in the context of relationships. And so the healthcare industry has moved and borrowed from the for-profit industry and has begun to and has for decades now adopted a language that is not a language of healing, but is a language of industry. We've borrowed the words like productivity from people that make cars or widgets. We've borrowed the words deliverables as opposed to collaboration. We've borrowed the words, you know, so when you think about productivity, um, actually our business is about engagement. And it turns out, believe it or not, we can bill for engagement. You know, you know, and actually you can talk to somebody about how, what's happening with your engagement. It looks like your engagement's low. What, what are the barriers to your engagement? Um, as opposed to what's wrong with your productivity? Much different conversation when you ask somebody what's happening to them as opposed to what's wrong with them. And those are words of healing. Those are not words of, um, of compliance and, um, and industry. And there are many examples of that when you think about efficiency opposed to collaboration. Um, all of these get you the same outcome, but when you start to use relational language, you begin to ally with our best science, which is we heal in the context of relationships, so our healthcare system should be relational. And, you know, I have to say, Barbara, you know this. <laughs> you were a very relational leader, and sometimes... Sometimes that's, you know, it was hard because you had relationships with so many people in so many communities, but that was the thing that I learned. In those six years, I had the honor of working with you, is that, that it is through these relationships that we, um, we actually reduce risk, um, as opposed to risk-averse organizations um, looking to its compliance and its lawyers and its, its legal team and its policies. It's actually those places that we use our relationships and we reduce risk and we increase Innovation. Yeah, thank you, Ken. You know, um, I learned very early on in my um, work myself that um, I worked with community organizing, and you just had yourselves, uh-huh. and so you know, relationships yeah. were the thing. And in fact, you know, having uh-huh. uh, been, I, I worked for the San Francisco Health Department for over twenty years, um, mm-hmm. and you know, this whole dynamic of who has power and who doesn't. I found that when I was the homeless director for the health department, I had as much power as I did when I was the health director. 
in the mm-hmm. aspect of mm-hmm. relationships. Um, uh-huh. And uh-huh. that, you know, I could, you know, mandate, like the mandate that you have for three weeks, um, that's a power. But the power of being able to call somebody and say, hey, can we do this part of a program? Um, do you think you'd be willing to do this? Is a whole different kind of relationship. And so I really thank you for that compliment because it, it was a part of, it was embedded in me in terms of really community organizing. And, and I found over and over and over again that when people come together, they can do some most incredible things. And as a reflection to that today, we have people who are dealing with an uncontrollable epidemic, but they're coming together uh-huh. and trying to figure out the best way to protect all of us. And so we really have to honor and have gratitude for everyone today working on this virus. And um, we also, I think, I can make systems more humane. And I really appreciate the work that you're doing um, in um, your new consulting business. You know, you have more freedoms. Um, and you can work with mm-hmm. multiple organizations um, and mm-hmm. be much more critical of what we're, uh, how we're engaging. You know, I wanted to ask, mm-hmm. you know, when you do a comparison to the mental health system, the medical system, there's some different kinds of uh, different mm-hmm. models of that. Well, your primary care doc, you know, you're in there um, and, you know, there's so much stigma, um, even from the primary care side, which is much better today than it was, say, a decade ago, um, where, you know, mental health was in, had to go around the corner or, you know, for instance, in one of the rural communities I worked at, you know, there was no psychiatrist that you could see. Um, and so, um, you know, what do you see about that evolution of that um, bringing together uh, the systems of care and, and especially with the work mm-hmm. that you're doing now? Mm-hmm. I'm so glad you asked that question because it's actually been a, you know, a transformation in my career on how I think about that. If, you know, if, if you look at behavioral health in its traditional form and you look at all of our studies, you'll see that, you know, you put them together, we're, we're pretty effective. If somebody shows up at our office and they stay and we do a treatment with them, there's like a 60 to 80% um, a rate of people getting better. And that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. The problem is, um, if I, my, my wife was a librarian, she retired uh, uh, last January, and she was a real social worker in the family because she was at a branch library in San Francisco. And I like to say that um, if somebody showed up at her library and she noticed they needed some help, she gave them my card, if I weren't married, but she gave them the card of a clinician, there's a 20% chance that that person will end up in their clinician's office. And in some communities, that chance is probably lower than 10 or 5%. So so the community is not going to necessarily voluntarily go see a clinician. If they do, we're effective. And so one thing you may want to do is lower stigma for people so that they will attend more and maybe raise it to 15, 20, 30 percent. However, the, the importance of behavioral health, I believe, is to actually integrate other systems and places. And it's part of what's on the systems before it was, is can we actually teach in language associated and understandable by primary care physicians and clinic, um, clinic um, nurses and clerks. And, you know, I can think about many bus drivers, um, bus drivers in our public, you know, public um, um, system. Um, can, um, can that language be translatable? 
to what people do day to day because of those interactions. And that doesn't mean that people don't do therapy, but it does mean can see what we know about healing as part of ourselves, uh, sort of activity, that it becomes part of what people say. A friend of mine, a colleague of mine said that they walk into their office every day. They, um, they walked by uh, homeless people, and um, they, didn't look, they didn't look at them or they contacted them because it was too upsetting for them. And then they realized that they were carrying that all day with them, and they made a conscious choice not to necessarily always do what needed to be done with somebody money, but they made conscious choice to say hello and in their mind silently wish them well or wish them help. Um, imagine a, a bus driver who sees a young person on a bus who's not going to school, but knows how to talk to that young person about why they're not a schoolist uh, in a way that's compassionate and compelling or a coach that's able to connect with a young person in a clinician world. So, in a clinic, um, I was in New York, um, at a clinic in Molecular Hospital in New York, and there was a, a security guard there who was telling me that when he adopted a trauma-informed approach, he understood that he could make eye contact with people as they walked in and say hello and make an assessment of their safety and their connection to the clinic. And if he felt some concern, he would talk to them and pull them aside before they said anything. There was a, you know, this is, you'll feel this, there was a, a person at the Laguna Honda Hospital here in one of our trainings who said after the training that she was sort of careful. She understood that how her patients, what, what was happening for her patients when they were grumpy more, and she felt like she was going to be more consistent with them around their grump as she understood what they'd been through. Right. So, you know, and, you know, if you think about it, you know, this. who spends more time with the patients than the clerks, the coaches, housekeeping staff? I mean, if I've got 50 minutes to with a client, but they've got four hours or five hours a week. Right. So right. a lot of the purpose of the trauma-informed systems is to actually share the the what we know about healing and what we know about trauma with a much larger workforce that we all feel more competent and capable to interact with the general population. And that's what happened in, you know, as we've trained 17,000 people. You know, most of the department now is trained, well, almost 8,500 people have been trained at the Department of Public Health. Well, that's the challenge I gave you, Ken, remember? You did. You told me that. That's what you told me when I left your office. You said, you should try. You should train the department. I walked out. I didn't know there was 9,000 people. <laughs> right. I was like, oh, okay, the boss just gave me. <laughs> Job, well done, 9, Job well done, Ken. Job well done. Job well done. Well, you know, that Thank really it's a powerful message because what it does, it really breaks down the barriers of our professional lines. And it brings the That's humanity right. of um, people being able to heal each other uh, without degrees. And really yeah. just using their uh, common human senses uh, and the humanity uh -huh. that they have and the gratitude um, that they can give to others. So I really, it's a really powerful training and it's also a powerful uh, model 
for us to use mm -hmm. to really uh, improve our health systems. And I know that's the work that you're doing um, in your new work. So why don't you share with us um, what PREP is doing and tell us what PREP stands for. Oh, um, so I actually, um, I actually do a few things as part of that, and it's um, really preparing for change. Um, so um, I, um, I do leadership consulting and leadership, um, um, leadership consulting and leadership learning sessions um, at different institutions like at Montefiore and worked in Seattle and, um, and other places around uh, San Francisco. I also work in conjunction with traumatransform.org. And so it would be good um, for folks that are listening, if you want to know more about trauma-informed systems, to look at traumatransform.org. There's a great resource, uh, um, great resources for your organizations, uh, assessments, or an idea of what it's like to enter into health systems and try to humanize and build uh, relational practices in the health system. Really what we do, and I do individually and collectively, is we develop models of change, really cultural models of change in organizations that help organizations begin to develop um, models of, of acting, leading, responding that uh, incorporate an understanding of trauma, but more importantly, understand uh, an understanding that our organizations um, suffer from, often, sort of the legacy of history. Um, and one of the things we have to do and we talk about a lot and we often look over is a recognition of what's happened, um, whether it's a recognition um, of um, racial or uh, sexual or other inequities that have been perpetrated within our organizations and within the communities. It's really important to recognize it. The second thing we talk about is repair. Not enough to recognize, but we have to actively develop a repair plan that involves understanding our history and then thinking about how do we acknowledge and move forward. And then we need to reconcile our policies, our procedures, and our practices by understanding that um, they, people just don't comply with the new initiative of the day. I often say that San Francisco, you know this, Barbara, is like a city of initiatives on steroids. And the brain can't hold all the initiatives the workforce is trying to do. So it's often important to try to put those initiatives in some sort of a context and align them with our principles uh, on practices so that we can um, get folks um, more, um, more connected to what they're doing. There's an old story from 1962 um, where... Um, JFK walks into NASA and um, starts talking to um, a house cleaning person there sort of in the evening. And he asks the house cleaning person why they're there at this time in the evening. And the house cleaning person looks up at him and says, I'm getting a man to the moon. Ooh, right. And, um, right. you know, so, so I think, you know, how, how is it that our clerks, the folks that are at the front lines of our work, um, feel as focused on our mission as the directors and the folks that develop strategic plans in private rooms. And so a lot of the work we do is try to figure out how do you communicate effectively, efficiently, how do you build learning modules so that leaders and supervisors can effectively 
communicate with their staff. And if you and if you think about it, we're in a world of emails and gosh, if you're anywhere now responding to COVID, um, this is just an incredible example. I, I you know, I'm I'm retired from the department and uh, retired from UCSF, and yet I get um, 20 emails a day about COVID-19. Um, some of them are from Avis, or you know, you know, some a place I've bought shoes before about what they're doing to prevent me, but you know, protect us. And some of them are from the system. And it's quite overwhelming and confusing. Right. And so the whole way we communicate by email is. Um, something we work on a lot. It's really the micro parts of organizational culture, how meetings are run, how, how um, micro and macro aggressions happen in meetings. When uh, someone may be looking at their device and they look up and they say something after someone else says something and they have a really different to them or meetings that have no decision rule or beginning or end. Um, or even individual supervision for the way in which we meet with people. Do we actually provide space to reflect and talk about their experiences so that they can connect and we can connect before we talk about the ways in which their work is uh, going. These things are seem like small and, um, but they're, they're lost in our world of moving faster and disconnecting more. So we work a lot on these micro organizational patterns that, um, and create huge differences in organizational culture. That's wonderful, Dr. Epstein. I'm so glad you've continued your work. Uh, we need you, particularly right now, as yeah. uh, we try to repair our country um, after and during um, this uh, pandemic that we're all trying to uh, fight. Um, and so today I want to thank you for being such a, a great uh, leader in the mental yeah. health field. Um, and continuing uh, the legacy of your mom, and also uh, continuing with uh, the new generations that uh, are coming uh, forward um, in the work. So thank you, thank you, Dr. Epstein. And uh, we want to thank you so much for being on our our Healthcare Untold podcast today. And um, any last comments, Ken? I do. First, I want to thank you. I mean, if I haven't enough in this, um, podcast. Um, you have been a mentor, and a lot of what I think and do is related to a lot that you've taught me. Uh, one thing that I want to add connecting, yeah. Um, I don't know, the medical doctors and all of us, I, I imagine we're going to move through at some point. Um, I don't know the, the length or the time. Um, you know, we will figure this out, and our people will come back across the world. You know, in a way, COVID, um, what I've learned from COVID is that, COVID-19 is that um, there's a lot of talk about screening and response. And then there's been a lot of criticism about how prepared we were or were for COVID-19. Um, it is an epidemic, and it is of great concern. There is also a silent epidemic of trauma that has happened um, behind closed doors, and it's about, and it, and it gets unspoken. A colleague of mine said that when we think about trauma, we have to speak the unspeakable, and to which I've added, we have to hear the unhearable and then do the undoable. And I think in this time of COVID, um, as it passes, we should think about and hopefully act upon 
the ways in which trauma has been a silent killer of greater proportions than COVID is or even will be. That's right. And that we need to think about it, incorporate it, and this has to do with racial and social inequities, um, has to do with the ways in which our um, folks are um, proportioned resources and how we go about uh, working and being in our communities. So I hope that this prepare, screen, and respond gets extended to let's prepare and then let's eliminate the scourge of trauma as we think about and recover from COVID. I thank you for your the opportunity, so heartfelt opportunity to talk. Thank you, Dr. Epstein. And uh, most definitely, we will continue to work on the elimination of trauma. Dr. Epstein, I want to thank you so much um, for your lifetime commitment to the mental health of families and children. Um, please send your comments to healthcareuntold2020 at gmail.com, healthcareuntold2020 at gmail.com. Until next time, be safe, keep your hands clean, and um, let's ensure that we take care of each other. Thank you, Dr. Epstein. Thank you, Hi, my name is Gerardo Dr. G. Sandoval, producer of Healthcare Untold. We'd like you to know that we are supporting our local businesses, and we encourage you to do the same. Who doesn't need an empanada during these trying times? San Francisco, you are able to order some empanadas from El Sur. Handmade empanadas inspired by Argentina and crafted with love in San Francisco. El Sur will be open for takeout and delivery only. Please order online under Bake at Home for delivery and under Pickup in the cafe section of their website. You can order empanadas online at elsursf.com. El Sur thanks you for your continued support and remember, stay safe. Thanks El Sur and thank you for your empanadas.